Hello, and welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, uh, the podcast where we discuss the science of the here and now, I guess. And that's because today is a This Week in Science episode. Dun, da, da, da. We love our We love our current science. I guess I'll introduce myself before we get started. My name's Sienna. I am one of the hosts of this lovely podcast that I enjoy doing. And I'm also enjoying doing a PhD in neuroscience at McGill University. My name is Alistair, and I am your other host of this podcast, and I have finished my PhD in analytical chemistry from Queen's University. And my name is Om, another host of this podcast, <laughs> also enjoying it, and I'm finishing up my PhD at McGill University in biochemistry. Woo. Woo. So where are your PhD three? What science um, have you brought for us this week, Sienna? Exactly. What's the new... <laughs> kept this one secret I'm, I'm curious yeah technically i did although it's not that secret it's been in the news all week so you may have seen you may have seen it i know well, i've been um, living under a rock. seems to be aware of it but uh today we are talking about essentially um brain implants for enabling talking to people who are or well a person this is a sort of like one person report on a patient who has uh, clinically locked in syndrome so this is due to a disease called ALS and they implanted micro electrode arrays in the brain and were enabled the patient to talk using this like spelling software based on um, neurofeedback training wow. these are all really like big words kind of and like big concepts but uh, yeah we're gonna break it down and talk about this really exciting cool paper um, so yeah, the paper that was published in March 22nd in Nature Communications is entitled Spelling Interface Using Intracortical Signals in a Completely Locked-In Patient Enabled via Auditory Neurofeedback Training. So yeah, um, this has definitely done the rounds in the science news, and that's because it is a really, I think, exciting development in the field of brain computer interfaces i guess is mm. what you could call this um and essentially what the study did is they had a patient a person who was diagnosed with als and who progressed to locked in syndrome which is uh kind of defined there's sort of like differences between locked in syndrome and clinically locked in syndrome so a lot of patients who have locked in syndrome have lost like a lot of mus muscle control and motor control and can't move but often they can still move their eyes well enough that they're like um sort of communication interfaces they can use based on eye movements mm. and so for quite a while before this patient applied for a brain microchip essentially a brain interface not really a microchip but um before they had this brain interface they were communicating using eye movements to signal yes or no and kind of communicate with their caretakers and their family that way mm -hmm. and um eventually they progressed so that they did lose motor control of their eyes as well and that disabled the ability to use any like do this type of communication using eye movements and um before that happened that's when they sort of decided to make a transition and apply for this brain surgery to get a micro electrode array and they actually got two of them implanted on their brain that they were then the researchers hooked up to a computer and ran this software through and this was a 
this experiment ran for over 400 days. Like this was a very year long experiment. And I say experiment, it's not, they're not really experimenting on the person, but I guess it's kind of interesting the way the study is written. It's like a lot of uh, work back and forth with the patient and the research team of modifying the software so that the patient could uh, use these microelectrode arrays and send signals from their brain into a computer to communicate with the researchers and with their family and friends. Wow. So the way microelectrode arrays work is they're really, really, really small and they have a bunch of like tiny, 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 tiny needles and they're implanted directly onto the surface of your brain and they sit there and then you have like a wire coming out. And so it's a kind of like microsurgery really uh, technique. And so that's what this patient underwent. So there's there's a lot of complexity then when it comes to translating from this microelectrode array, which is picking up electrical signals that are occurring at that point in the brain, wherever it's implanted. So here they implanted two, one in a motor area and another in the supplementary motor area of the brain of this patient. And they chose these areas because uh, these areas receive inputs and send outputs to sort of the spinal cords so that they're associated with like the, phys- the physical, the thought of moving body parts. And so then they asked this patient to try and imagine moving different parts of their body, like their tongue, their thumbs, their fingers, etc., in order to try and get a consistent signal from these microelectrode arrays that then they could decode. Okay, and this went on for about, I think, 40 to 80 days of the experiment where they were trying this method of try to imagine using your moving your fingers, moving your tongue to get some sort of like to and they were trying to decode the signal based on asking the patient to do this task and they weren't able to get a reliable signal above background noise from this. So they moved on to this really cool technique called neurofeedback. Have you guys heard of neurofeedback before? I have not. Okay, that's great. I love that. Okay, (laughs) wow. I'm so excited to tell you all about it then. So um, neurofeedback training is essentially, and you can do it with like, uh, they do it with mice a lot and rats, like any, um, there's a lot of studies where you implant microelectrode arrays into the brain, and then you can train uh, people, mice, anything that has a microelectrode array essentially to uh, achieve a target signal of their or target readout of their neural activity. So if you take a microelectrode array and um, try and convert the signals that you're getting from it into an auditory tone that it's playing, then you play the tone for the person and ask them to modulate their neural, like just try and think about different (laughs) things essentially is what they're asking the patient to do. And as they think about different things, the signal from the microelectrode array is translated into higher or lower tones sounds so Mm -hmm. um eventually what you can achieve is you can figure out (laughs) something to think about that moves the tone higher frequency higher or moves it lower and eventually then if you get good enough at this and you practice it enough you can move it to match the tone that you heard initially Mm. and then this allows the researchers to kind of adapt the software programming because now they have a sort of yes signal of like, we know that you can consistently get this signal out of your micro uh, array, out of your brain um, computer interface. So if you can make this tone, you can kind of maintain a specific firing neurons and electrical signal that's coming through your implant 
And that we can then use to translate as essentially like a yes threshold event. Wow. Right. It's like associative, right? In that sense. Yeah. So if I'm imagining whatever, moving my finger and that creates a clear tone, we will associate that with, let's say the letter A or whatever it might be later. Yeah, exactly. So you can use it as essentially, like you can just use it in downstream functions. It's kind of like a a gate. And then also Mm. what you can then do is, you know, have a lower tone for the uh, different options. So you can either modulate your brain activity one way so that produces a high frequency tone and then you can call this and what they did was they called this sort of the yes tone and then they had the opposite where they didn't uh, they lowered the tone below a certain threshold and that was the no tone and so they were able to get these two essentially binary or opposite signals based on the person's brain waves they were modulating it themselves so why why did they put it in the motor area and not like a language area of the brain oh man uh (laughs) this is a great question and i won't know the specific answer but i think probably because the patient had already been trained on the eye motor programs like the Mm -hmm. move your eyes for yes no type thing and so uh there's that aspect of it which they already have sort of an associated um, experience of moving specific muscles to get in a specific, a specific outcome. Also because the motor areas are right on top of your head mm. and are the outer cortex areas. Whereas I think the language area is in the temporal cortex. So on the sides, yeah. um, so not as accessible. I see. It's a really easy, easy implant location. Mm-hmm. And if it's coming mm-hmm. right out, cause you have to have a wire that comes out of it, right? Yeah. So it might not be as comfortable if you have a wire coming out of a different part of your head, I imagine. Mm-hmm. So I imagine there's both like a relationship to both what they're trying to achieve with the microelectrode array, which is like easily manipulatable signals based on thinking about movement, which is a kind of easy, easy-ish task, maybe, depending on. Um, I've never done it, so I don't know. But I assume it's an easy-ish task to assign to someone or tell, and it's easy for everyone you know, you, we all know what it means to think about moving something, moving mm-hmm. a body part. Um, and then the fact that it's a really accessible location on the head and won't disturb too much, like, um, I guess, just c- comfort, probably physical comfort is probably maximized if you're going through the top of the head as opposed to like the side or the back. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I imagine. But I can't, I'm mm-hmm. not sure, sure. <laughs> That's a really good question. That's my uh, mm-hmm. understanding of it. No, um, sense. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, with the neurofeedback training, they were able to get this sort of uh, discretionary response between yes and no signals. And then they were able to use this to sort of set up a program where the patient was able to select letters and then spell out sentences. And this is like a really remarkable achievement and result and very exciting because, you know, it's obviously, I think it's like one of the, like, it's just like a very, um, it's a difficult disease to have because you are aware and you can hear and you know what's going on around you. But to be unable to have any motor control means it's very difficult both for like your caretakers and your family to uh, figure out what your needs are. And obviously it's very difficult for you to communicate them. And of course you want to. So this was like a really huge step in towards like creating 
a sort of system where somebody could communicate their needs to their um to their people around them and so yeah and so a lot of what this uh, person then did end up communicating was related to their physical needs like they often would ask to be like sat straight up or sat like higher up in their bed when they were doing these activities and when they're interacting with people and some of it is really funny and some of it's really sweet and it's like uh, a really nice paper to read for that um so one time the patient asked to listen to a specific uh album <laughs> loud specifically they wanted to listen to it loudly and then also they like asked to watch robin hood with their son um Aww. yeah they wanted they asked for specific foods so they wanted to have curry or like sweet pea soup um so yeah it's you know wonderful it was a wonderful mm-hmm. achievement i think and i it uh, seems to have been something that you know, helped the patient in a lot of ways. And great great that the patient was able to not just give yes or no answers, but also, like, mm-hmm. communicate their wants, needs, desires, how loud they wanted to listen to an album. Like, that's great. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's one of those... Um, gives them a little bit more autonomy, I guess, over their mm-hmm. um, yeah. life. Uh, so what are, the, what are the downsides to this? Or, like, what hasn't this achieved yet? And... Um, so one of the main things is that like these microelectrode arrays that you can get implanted are pretty stable and reliable over long term. Like I said, like this experiment seems to have lasted over a year and they were able to get mostly um, semi-consistent uh, output from it. But the problem is they're also incredibly variable. And so not only did they have to like retest and refocus the software every single day that they did these experiments so every single time that they wanted to let this uh patient use the spelling um program they had to like reset the neural feedback channels that they were kind of maximizing and using to distinguish between these tones based on essentially what the person was able to think about to bring that tone into range and out of range Mm -hmm. and the variability of the microelectrode arrays can be due to you know, a variety of factors. So microelectrode arrays are, like some are supposed to be able to kind of record from single neurons or single regions of neurons, but there's a lot of things that can interfere with the signal that they're picking up because there's also a lot of cells in the brain that are not neurons. Mm. And then especially over time, you know, even though they're really, really, really tiny, like you can't even see the needles by eye, that's how small they are. You can just see like the little 1.5 millimeter square patch that goes on the brain um, over time it still can like lead to like scarring and there can be like inflammation around the area of the region of the implant so there's kind of confounding things that can happen and interfere with the microelectrode array signal um, and so they found that like this was one of the main barriers to you know communication was that like this was not usable every single day that they tried like some days they tried to find settings that worked and they could not and some days they could, and then they were mm-hmm. able to spell like 450 characters a day, you know, but um, some days they found settings that worked, but then the communication just wasn't working. So there was kind of different levels of success in terms of using this over the study range or study period. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm going to ask potentially a stupid question, but I'm yeah. curious about this. Um, I know 
for ALS since, you know, disease of the motor neurons, particularly degeneration of the motor neurons, Mm -hmm. those being the upper, those leading towards the the brain, and also then those from the spine to the muscle itself. Mm -hmm. Um, But in this case, they're attaching it to the motor neurons in the brain. And I'm curious to know how they account for the degeneration that'll happen through the life of the patient as well, right? Or is that area not affected? So I think like mainly in ALS Mm -hmm. and part of the reason why it's a good candidate for this is that like the neurons residing in the brain itself are not the primary neurons affected. It is mainly the neurons of the spinal cord. Yeah, they're usually later as well. They are later affected. Mm -hmm. But I even think like to be clear. Yeah. If they, even if they are the latest affected, the ones that are affected the most, the motor neurons in the periphery, um, you know, that loss and death of motor neurons probably um, leads to patient mortality much earlier than you see any major brain symptoms, as far as I'm aware. Because, uh, like, you know, one of the major problems with losing motor neurons in your extremities is then you eventually lose, like, the ability to breathe on your own. It's exactly your diaphragm. Right. So the, the yeah, those that... neurons innervating mm-hmm. your diaphragm and like chest cavity. If mm-hmm. you lose control over those, then it's like <laughs> your mortality is going to be much higher. But yeah. the neurons in your brain, I just think, are affected as much by the point that like the neurons in your periphery are. Yeah, that's. But true. they they yeah. say like it's right possible also you know that like part of the reason is that there is still loss of uh, like neurodegeneration occurring in and around the implant and also you know just the loss mm-hmm. of signal coming from your spine into your brain could alter like the pathways and the activity of the neurons so, that are in your brain as well so like yeah. there's a lot we don't know about how i mean there's a lot we don't know about microelectrode arrays generally you know like we don't know how many neurons they're listening to at one point really we don't know who who they're listening to which neurons right mm-hmm. and those neurons can also like the microelectrode array could shift over time so it could like be listening to a certain patch of neurons at one point that like generally move away potentially the cells could shift away too from the microelectrode array so like the signal is very variable depending on all of these factors and then also mm-hmm. of course if you're losing projections to the brain and like certain neural synapses i guess and like connections are becoming weaker because of that then that can impact also what the microelectrode array is essentially eavesdropping on exactly yeah makes a lot of sense mm. yeah but overall, I mean, I mean just, yeah, you go ahead first. You first. <laughs> uh, I just want to say, like, in terms of the severity of ALS, I don't know if the, for listeners' information, like, prognosis for ALS is typically three to five years upon diagnosis. Yeah, it's like it's it's a very it's a rare disease, but it is a very deadly one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, just this this I want to emphasize, like, this paper, from my understanding so far, is like it's a huge quality of life improvement for these folks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so, so important for patients who are receiving particularly like end of life care to be able to communicate, right? Exactly. And while we're also working very hard at the same time to try and find treatments for these things. Yeah, exactly. Like it's a, it is a remarkable step in terms of end of life mm-hmm. care and quality of life for patients who have, are experiencing clinically locked in syndrome, right? to go from not being able to communicate anything to be able to communicate basic needs and like even beyond basic needs, just like little things that you want. Mm-hmm. And if you think about things you a, want can be needs. But. <laughs> totally. If you think about a like notable and I guess slightly exceptional example, um, Stephen Hawking had ALS, right? Mm-hmm. And he was able to communicate, I think, with eye movements 
and mm-hmm. did some incredible like was an incredible physicist before his diagnosis but yeah. lived i think longer than it was expected oh, yeah. um, Much longer, yeah. but still communicated long past his disease's progression right yeah um so yeah yeah exactly i think he did communicate with eye movements and there's a whole or they're also like i suspect he also had control over one hand or like a few fingers for quite a bit of his disease too like i think that was part of i think early on he was using a keyboard for the start and then yeah and like a little a joystick too Mm -hmm. at some point as well Mm -hmm. and the nice like the thing about the there's a lot of a lot there's software options and like program options for this type of eye movement recording software that can allow you to select you know yes or no answers and communicate your needs that way and it's much faster and convenient because your eyes can move more quickly and you just have to be able to focus on specific things on a screen and then the software picks that up and tracks it and it's also non-invasive but you know for patients like this patient who had lost his ability to do this Mm -hmm. then moving on to something else even if it's so the microelectrode array was much slower. You could type like a, a character a minute. So like a very mm. slow method of communication, but then you're not limited to yes or no answers. Also, you're actually able to type out entire sentences if you want. So, um, you know, it was a really useful, I think it seems like it was a really useful tool for this mm-hmm. patient to improve their quality of life and care, yeah. which is really important. Very, very Absolutely. interesting to think about like controlling something with, your mind or like having your brain in a certain state mm-hmm. to be picked up by the electron array to then have an output of a letter or a character or something um it's just interesting to think about controlling something that way because we don't typically do that yeah i remember going to a talk once where they did this like a uh, similar thing with mice they trained them for neurofeedback so if they could match the tone to a specific tone then they got a treat you can train i actually might have been rats to be fair i think this was probably rats so but same thing like they had a brain implant if they matched their brain waves to produce a certain tone a treat came out of the treat dispenser and so they learned very quickly (laughs) to (laughs) modulate their brain waves and like produce this tone so that they could get treats but i think it's also interesting in the case of the rats you can't ask them what they're thinking about. And it was supposed to be, you know, the study was trying to get them to modulate it based on like behavioral, uh, I guess just behaviors. But I was wondering in the audience, and I also asked the question of like, couldn't they just be thinking about like something really specific? Like what if they've just learned to like twitch one toe and that somehow like spikes a channel well enough to like produce this result. And the, um, the speaker was like, yeah, you know, that's a possibility. Some And it mm-hmm. does seem like some rats are able to sort of produce a much faster, uh, higher frequency, like, output than we would expect based on, like, what we're trying to train them to do. So it's possible that they're, like, hijacking a way around it, <laughs> right, <laughs> with their brainwaves. But what was interesting, you know, we don't know that, right? But what's amazing is that they did ask the patient what they were thinking about in order to produce these um, brain waves. And apparent, according to the patient, what he responded was he was used, like thinking about moving his eyes. So it was still an eye movement based, according to him, um, output, I guess, or input. You think about moving your eyes in certain ways and he was able to modulate the tone that way. So I think that's really fascinating and is... Um, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, <laughs> yeah. to mm-hmm. actually be able to know like what somebody is thinking about in order to produce specific brain patterns that are being picked up or like electrical patterns that are being picked up by these micro 
electrode arrays in the brain. Really, mm-hmm. really incredible. Very remarkable. Do, any, do the yeah. authors have any next steps on, in their discussion section? What do they, I what mean, do they think? I think they were okay. really like happy with the outcome, mm-hmm. of course. Um, you know, part of the problem is like the successfulness of it over time. And so over time, like the um, it's gone down, like the patient has been not able to uh, communicate as well through the microelectrode array, both maybe due to like there's just uh, more noise in the system that they can't overcome and get like these consistent uh, signals out of the microelectrode array. And like I said, this could be due to both like just the long time that they're recording for and like alterations to the uh, cellular environment in which the microelectrode array is implanted, as well as it could be a result of the disease process um, on the patient themselves, right? So like neurons that could be dying or losing connections that they would otherwise have used to sort of uh, activate the microelectrode array. Um, so there's kind of this like instability of the signal for this purpose, but um, I think it's still like a, they're pro- hoping to move forward with it in other patients as well and try it out there. And then also, yeah, I don't know. I I think they're just trying going to try it out more times, right? And see if they do. hopefully yeah. they can figure out a more consistent consistent usage of it because as remarkable as it is, and I'm sure as helpful as it was, I think they did like something around 130 trials and only 40 of those was the patient able to communicate wow. like using this sentence um, software. And not just because, like I say, a bunch, uh, many of the trials, they just couldn't overcome the feedback through the channels. So like they couldn't get a reliable yes, no signal that they could then work with to do the speller uh, program. But so, then other times they could do the speller program, but there wasn't any reliable uh, communication happening. So, mm. and they don't know the reason for this as well. It could be the patient is tired or frustrated and is just giving up, or it could be maybe there's still some interference with the machine. Who's to say, right? Um, so, yeah, I think it's uh, improving on the software and the, maybe the hardware, although microelectrode arrays are pretty refined, but just in general, improving on the systems that are in place to get a more consistent result and a more consistent. Yeah ability for patients to communicate and i'm also hoping faster too <laughs> i'm sure everyone would appreciate a faster end result as well mm-hmm. yeah step in the right direction definitely a step in the right direction and like very um if it, it feels to me like very science fiction in like the best possible way mm. you know of like this is exactly how we want to see technology and like biology <laughs> come together right like into helping people who have you know, who have these really um, difficult diseases and like, um, like, yeah, I, it's helping people who have medical needs communicate is just like, I think the best possible outcome for something like this. And so I think it's really cool and exciting. And it'll be nice to see it improved on and available to more patients who want and need access to it. Totally. This is the, this is the brain chip that we want to see. Yeah. <laughs> Not naming any other brain chips, but. Well, <laughs> oh, well. <Yeah>, no. <laughs> but uh, exactly. This is the type of brain uh, 
computer interfaces that we're really interested in. And I think the ones that have the most use, right? Like, otherwise, if you have access to your own spelling <laughs> program, right, like in your brain and you have access to your muscles, you know, you don't need this type of brain. Chip. But like a lot of people do need this and a lot of people would benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And so it's developing and refining these systems so that the people who need access can access them and use them and the people who don't don't just like just like anything accessibility is what we want Mm -hmm. Um, i think it'd be interesting uh as a next step to take a patient who knows sign language and see if asking them to think of like spelling out different signs Mm -hmm. and monitoring that area or whatever could lead to faster communication instead of kind of a yes no response picking letters if yeah Different Again, signs I think, have different uh, brain signatures. I, I don't know. There's probably been studies done about this, but mm. I wonder, like, well, so for one, the microelectrode array only picks up a very small portion mm-hmm. of brain activity. So it's not like those brainwave studies where you can, like, we talked about um, MEG before or looking at, like, cortical patterns of just brain activity using... Uh, electrodes on like the surface where you can kind of see like general patterns and overarching patterns for brain activity across space but like you're looking at a very very small portion of brain so mm. subset of activity so if something is happening outside of the microelectrode array area it's not going to pick that up and that's right probably quite likely for certain things and probably exactly why they struggled to get any usable signal when they were asking the person to think about moving their thumb, for instance, is probably the microelectrode array was nowhere near the neurons involved in thinking about moving a thumb. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be uh, difficult to do that. But the other thing that would be interesting that I don't know the answer to, but we could probably find out (laughs) eventually, and like, just we just Google it, is um, whether sign language is processed more in the language centers or in the motor centers or both. So Mm -hmm. yeah, that would be another, another thing to think about. But yeah, it would be really interesting you know, or they did implant two electrodes to get kind of a better signal and give them sort of two options for channels. Essentially, it's two channels, right? So you can either turn one up or turn the other up and turn one down was the idea in this case. But, you know, if you put them in more separate areas or if you put like four channels in, for instance, Mm -hmm. then you probably could get more refined um, different types of signals that you could then use to create more options. For selection mm. one of the last i forgot to mention this earlier but one of the things that i thought was most most interesting about this study and that i haven't seen reported on as much but i think is like the the best part to me is that at one point in one of these communication centers the patient asked for the speller software to be improved such that he could select between like commonly used words and commonly mm. used phrases and it's like Yes, of course. And I love that because it not only shows like, like, I love the interaction of the participant with the science, right? Like, they know what would work best for them. They have an idea of what would make this a lot easier. And essentially what they were asking for was, you know, the keyboard (laughs) suggested word option, right? Of like, to speed things up, instead of having to pick out every letter and spell out every word, you know, have a word catalog of commonly used words that like, help form sentences that could be predicted. And you know, I think that's something that would also be really easy to integrate because we already have the software that does that for everyone's phones, right? So, like, mm-hmm. I think advances like that are going to be coming. So it becomes much easier to select words instead of letters. 
and to like narrow down more quickly the process of what what the person wants to say next. Yeah. But I, I just Absolutely. loved that he was <laughs> he was like, "Come on, guys, <laughs> Can I make get this easier on please? me, right?" Yeah. And then the other. <laughs> The other really sweet thing is like apparently he often would end the sessions by asking for beer and i just like nice. like you can just see that this is brought or at least it feels like it brought a lot of value and quality into this man's life who would otherwise be like almost unable to communicate with these with his people mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. really heartwarming yeah really useful can't wait to see where it goes because obviously this yeah. is like <laughs> the latest and greatest science in this so yeah very very helpful even like you know it's case study of one i'm excited to see it expanded to more people and see how it goes in the future mm-hmm. so yeah thank you for listening the paper in case you want to find it is called spelling interface using intracortical signals in a completely locked in patient enabled via auditory neurofeedback training in nature communications and it was published march 22nd but also, if you just want to read any of the news on it, you can always Google ALS um, and then brain interface or brain chip or ALS patient communicates. And I'm sure you'll find a lot of the articles that have been written about this. And yeah, I hope you enjoy learning more if that's what you go on to do. But thank you for listening to our podcast in the meantime. Um, I've been your host, Sienna. I'm Alistair. I'm Om. We'll catch you on the flip side. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.